This morning I want to talk about a short series on how to kill a church and how to be a vibrant church. And some of this is going to sound a little familiar for those of you that were at Pilgrim in our first year of revitalization because we spent a lot of time naming things. We might say a bit of prophetic critique of our own house. Some of it was good and positive. There were some great changes that had happened uh, with our previous pastor making some big changes and then the, the transition of the church quite a bit from where it was before he was here as well. And so Pilgrim had been on a slow changing journey all along. And so we sort of reemphasize those things and say, how can we take more steps in that revitalization journey? Uh, and so building on what had gone before and the changes that had happened in Pilgrim over the years and continue to build on that um, to, to bring about some new things in the midst of our body. For Emmanuel, this stuff may be new and may be a little bit more stinging to the ears today. And there's a wonderful verse in the New Testament that say there will be a time when people just want teaching that, that, that sort of tickles their ears. This is not the ear-tickling stuff, particularly this Sunday. Um, but it is encouraging stuff. It's the kind of encouragement when you go to the doctor and they say, you have cancer, but the good news is it hasn't spread through your body. We can cut this thing out and you will have some recovery time. It will hurt, but it will be good pain in order to remove bad pain. So it's that kind of thing that we need to lean into. So let me just open this up with a bit of an illustration, a true story. And this one is relayed to you by Tom Rainer. And uh, this morning, a couple resources if you are a geek like me. This is a short little book we gave to everyone at Pilgrim early on, uh, The Autopsy of a Deceased Church. A wonderful book, wonderful little book. I uh, also had people saying, why are you giving me a book about deceased church and autopsy? Well, read the book and then you'll know why. Um, so some of this is coming from Tom Rayner. Some of this today we'll also talk about from Melissa Archer, uh, her book, I Was in the Spirit in the Lord's Day, when she talks about worship in the book of Revelation or the Apocalypse of John. Um, and so that's another great resource. And I also want to point out Michael Gorman's Reading Revelation Responsibly. Uh, we're not really going to go deep into that, but just, just some background stuff for you today. For those of you that care for that, and for the rest of you, you can tune back in now. Wake up, here we go. <laughs> I knew the patient before she died. It was 10 years ago, and she was very sick at the time, but she didn't want to admit it. There was only a glimmer of hope at best, but that hope could become a reality only with radical change. And she was not nearly ready for that change. Indeed, she was highly resistant to any change, even though she was very, very sick. Even though she was dying, and so I told her the bad news bluntly. I said, you are dying. And I hope I said those words with some compassion because I did feel badly sharing the news, but it was only the only way I could see to get her attention. I even told her that at best, she had five years to live. And at the time I said those words, I didn't even really think that was, that, I didn't think that was that optimistic. I would not have been surprised if she died within a year. But she was not only in denial, she was in angry denial. I'll show you, she said. I'll prove you're wrong. I'm not dying. And her words were fierce, defiant, and angry. It was time for me to leave. I had done all that I could do. I left. I was not angry. I was very sad. Now, to her credit, she was right up to a point. She did not die in five years. She proved resilient and survived another 10 years. 
But her last decade, even though she was technically still alive, she was filled with pain, sickness, and despair. And I'm not so sure her longer-term survival was actually a good thing because she never got better. She slowly and painfully deteriorated, and then she died. She, of course, is a local church. Tom Rayner relays this story. He's referring to an actual real church, a church that was in the Midwest of the States, a church that was probably born out of vision, a church that had died because she no longer had a forward, outward vision. I've told this story several times, and I'm going to tell it again because it bears repeating. In the first church merger I was involved with, we had started worshiping together and for a couple of weeks, we did a real simple, old-school, conservative evangelical series on the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. For those of you that may not know what those are, Matthew 28, the end of Jesus, before uh, Jesus' life on earth, before he ascends into heaven, he says this to the disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, 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 outward focus, turn outward, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching the discipling, teaching mission of the church, teaching them to obey everything I, Jesus, has commanded you, not all that other stuff. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, the promise of his presence by the Holy Spirit. And I preached on that text, and then I preached on the great commandment. Real simple, conservative church evangelical stuff here. Matthew 22 said this, Jesus replied to the Pharisees and the religious, the religious who were testing him, don't understand the context there. He said, they, they asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And, you know, there's 600 and some commandments of Torah in the Old Testament. And he said, what's the greatest commandment? It's kind of a trick question. And Jesus replies, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second great commandment is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Whew, that would, man, if we took Jesus seriously at that and learned how to lean into that even more and more and more, people need God's outrageous Love that's just poured out by grace, not connected to all kinds of manipulative craziness. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, which again, there was no New Testament. The church predated the rest of the Bible, by the way. The church came first. Jesus experienced Jesus came first. Uh, and then the Old Testament, of course, was before that. But all the law and the prophets, all of that hang on these two commandments. And I will never forget in that time of working with two churches coming together, one that was, uh, had been in precipitous decline over years, and another that was a church plant, a little different situation than what we're dealing with here, of course. And there was an older couple that came to me. And this couple was really feisty about certain worship styles and a lot of what I would call third and fourth level issues. And they had been part of this. One of them was on the board, in fact, of the, one of the churches and came after this Sunday morning message on a whole series on the Great Commission and Great Commandments, stuff that Rick Warren and like any, anybody in conservative Baptist land or whatever would, would affirm and came up to me and looked at me and said, well, pastor, I know that you don't want us in this church. And I was completely floored because I had never expressed that. I had never, like we had discussed about styles and mergers and this and that, but I've never, ever, ever said, no, I don't see you in the future of this church. But the funny thing is when they heard the Great Commission, the words of Jesus 
something snapped in them and there was anger and there was dissent and there was, why can't we just keep this like my little country church in rural South Dakota? Because we were in a quarter million uh, area population center that was booming with many people that needed to experience Christ. And they, they just, I, 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 and I was dumbfounded by that. And I was kind of young and naive at the time. I'm still young and well, I'm not, I'm not so young anymore. I'm just still a little dumb and naive, just hopeful in Jesus. Um, and I was shocked by that. And we got a letter later that week of their resignation and saying, if this church is going to be about what was preached on Sunday morning, which was Matthew 28 and Matthew 22, the great commandment and the great commission, they did not want their social club turned back into a church as the original founders desired. And in their minds, I don't think that's really how it was, but in their minds. Let's talk about the seven ways to kill a church. Lord, thank you for your grace. And there are churches all over North America that are clinging on to some of these things that we're going to talk about today that care more about being a museum than being a hospital or being a station of outrageous, self-giving, Jesus-y love. And we see it across the spectrum Things that may have been fruitful in the past but are no longer. And attitudes in people's hearts that have become calcified. So like the prophet Jeremiah, Lord, we pray, uh, give us that word where you will change our hearts from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Help us to hear these words in love and grace and empower us in Jesus' name. And if you will say, amen. Amen. So the text we read today was from Revelation chapter 3. In the first part of the book of Revelation, just a quick exegesis there is the opening of this. And John says, I was caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day. The, also the title of Melissa Archer's wonderful exegesis on the book of Revelation is primarily a book of worship like Psalms. Most of us don't think about it that way, but that's what's going on. Most of it's in the context of worship. Hopefully I can unpack more of that sometime in a, in a more verse-by-verse uh, -verse series. But we read this text here in the final church. There's these letters to seven churches in the final church. To the church at Laodicea, Jesus comes and speaks prophetically. And he says, I know your deeds. They're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one. Oh, thank you, Lord. Today, we can experience the hot today of Vancouver. Thank you, Jesus, for that extra special gift. Help me to be sincere in my praise. <laughs> because you are neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. In the area, there were local baths, just like today, spas, where you do a hot dip and you would do a cold dip, but a lukewarm dip wouldn't do it for you. I'd rather that you were one or the other, but you're not useful this way. And then he gives them some counsel. I gives them three directions. So first off, we are reminded again in this that Jesus calls us to the churches, and he's calling these seven churches, and these are meant to be read together, and that the church in some ways is always in a state of disrespair and disobedience and unloveliness, and on the other hand, some churches are always moving into that future that God has for them, and that we sort of have a choice in how we act as the people of God. And so, this letter to Revelation need to be understood in that way. And so here, we need to see in these verses, verses 18 and 19, buy from me gold, Jesus counsels them. You don't understand your situation. You are choosing to be blind. So number one, buy from me gold, Jesus-centered again, that is refined by him, that true riches for churches are not in the bank account, are not in the building, or in the building to come, but only in Jesus, that he is the only gold that we truly have to offer the world. And if we forget that, we might as well shut it all down and burn it to the ground. And so it says here to this church at Laodicea that they have 
put Jesus on the outside of the church and Jesus is standing on the door knocking. And, you know, a good evangelical message would put this that he's standing on your heart's door. But in this case, he's actually standing at the door of the church. Earlier in the Gospels, he talks about standing at our heart's door. But here it's the door of the church and he's knocking. He's saying, hey, uh, are you going to let me in or not? To a thing that thought it was a church, Jesus is outside. And he's saying, it's not too late. Stop thinking that your wealth is in all of these other things. Church in North America, if you haven't got the news yet, our wealth is not in land or facilities or any of those things. It is only in Jesus. Somebody say amen. <laughs> the second thing he says, buy from me white clothes. Well, what is that all about? The white garments to cover their nakedness that he just spoke about a little bit earlier. These were also the clothes of the overcomers, the victors. In the ancient church, when one was baptized, you'd often wear these white garments to symbolize sort of this newness of life. And if they take Jesus' advice, they will be clothed again. Again, find new clothing because you don't realize you're naked. What does nakedness kind of mean? When we think about nakedness in most of our cultures, it's sort of shame if you're publicly exposed and you didn't plan on being publicly exposed. You weren't going down to, what's that beach by UBC or university? Yeah, okay, yeah. You were not planning on a wreck beak visit. The follow-up series is going to be really interesting when I have to undo all the things I did in this, but that's okay. Um, I'm here for the long haul. We're in this together. Home churches discern, make it better. Um, but this idea that they were nakedness, they were shamed that the, the position of the church and in a few weeks, and I'm wrestling with how to appropriately talk about this and if it's even me or how we figure out how to do this, but we need to talk about some of the shame of the exposed church. For instance, when we have bodies from young children found in unmarked graves that the church was complicit with a First Nations people. You're naked. Now, our nakedness varies. That's the extreme of something claiming to be Jesus. When the church gets in bed with the state, why am I an Anabaptist Christian? When the church gets in bed with the state, its offspring, its illegitimate offspring is violence. And we are living in a rehashing of that right now here in Canada. And the thing is, if you read any of the reports or any of the summaries of any of the past reports, we knew that there's some, I forget what the exact number is, I need to look it up, it's probably higher, but it was something like 3,500 children that we knew went missing and that the rate was much higher than anyone else in the general population. And now we're finding those graves through some of the radar and ground radar and sonar and all those things as well, naked. Well, find a way to talk about that more. But the third thing Jesus instructs here is buy salve to anoint your eyes so you might see. See Jesus, see our nakedness, see our poverty, see our absolute need to be recentered on him. And so he counsels this church. I'm standing outside and knocking. He's knocking at the door. He's calling. He's calling us to become overcomers. And yet he's there in their midst outside the door and I want to have that in our background as we quickly go through this final list today of some things that make for a way to kill a church. Lord, I can't do the rest of this without you, especially in the 10 minutes that I have, but Lord, help us to track, to yield to you as a body and as bodies, people being called together from many places here in Vancouver that we might live into newness of life that you have for us as individuals, as persons, as persons known in community. In your name, Jesus. So some quick things, and I'm going to do this list because these are short points. In fact, I have fewer notes than I normally have, so that usually means I preach longer. I don't know how that works, but there it is. 
Number one, I would say dying churches, churches you want to kill your church, have drama without depth. Drama without depth. Say it with me. Drama without depth. Now, I got saved in Pentecostal land. I am all for good drama as long as it's connected to the depth of the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. She got a Honda. Bring it on. But the Pharisees, for example, put drama around tithing their spices while ignoring issues of matter and love and justice. Drama without depth. Jesus also approached the Pharisees about their giving, how they trumpeted their almsgiving to the poor. And he said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't do that when you're giving money to help change someone's material circumstance. Do it in a way that lifts them up and doesn't exalt you and makes you, again, affirms your oneness in the family of God in the Sermon on the Mount. They had drama with prayer. They would go pray on the street corners. I think about people that want to go protest whatever on the street corners. And I think I'm not sure that's the most effective way to share Jesus-y kind of love in post-Christendom Canada. Standing on a corner with a sign like that. And praying and declaring. And he said, don't do that. Go in your closets. Pray. Emotional roller coasters with no vision of the drama of Jesus guiding the church. You want to kill your church, get worked up about all the wrong issues all the time, all the third level and fourth level things. That is a recipe for killing the church. Get really worked up about buildings. Get really worked up about how loud or how soft the music is. Get really worked up about who you're seated next to or not. Get really worked up about changing the furniture. Get really worked up about are we going to do a wanna or are we going to do one story or are we going to do a combination of all of them? Are we going to do this thing or this thing or this thing? Get all worked up about programs. Drama without depth. But if you want to have the right kind of drama, get worked up about Jesus. Remember, the book of Revelation is primarily a book of worship. And John is letting himself get caught up in the play of the Holy Spirit, the drama of the Holy Spirit. And he said, I was caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And then the rest of this great book gets unfolded about how do we live in light of a church that is being constantly wooed into compromise with the empires of the kingdoms of the world. How do we live in light of persecution? How do we live in light? Get caught up into that drama, the good kind of drama. The second thing, if you want to kill your church, make the past the hero. Say it with me. The past is the hero. The past is the hero. And by the past, let me differentiate between the capital T tradition of the church over 2,000 years, where this, the cloud of witnesses, the saints that are living in God's presence right now, that past is the present and the future. That's okay. It's all the little T traditions. Hebrews 11.13 talks about the heroes of faith who are willing to release in order to move into what God had for them, that the great heroes of the past that Hebrews 11.13 highlights are those that are willing to release control of what they thought they had control of in order to receive the new gifts of God. Those are the kind of heroes of the past, if we're going to look backwards, are the ones that didn't dwell in that, but wanted to walk forward in faith in what God had for them. Oh, I have a little story, but I'm out of time. I'll share that maybe another day, but I'll just say this. The past is the hero. In this book, Tom says this little prayer on this section. He says, God, give me the conviction and courage to be like the heroes of Hebrews 11. Teach me not to hold on to things in my church that are my personal preferences and styles and show me how not only to let go, but where to let go that I may heed your commands more closely. This includes things, by the way, not only about styles and substance, but about pastors. And I'm just going to give a little pastoral ethics spiel to everyone today. When a pastor leaves a church, they are supposed to cut off ties with that church. When a staff member leaves, there may be a few relationships because there were deep friendships and all of that. But by and large, if a pastor is still sticking their fingers in a church, there's an issue with that. 
And so we really have to wrestle with that. And there's a reason why I'm saying this in this season, that we need to be aware of that, that if you're a pastor in a church, when we leave, we bless and we end the relationship. Thankfully, we've had great models of that here at Pilgrim Church. We've had great models of that in every other church that I've ever served at. And we've had retired pastors. We've had people that have been in the congregation. We've had multiple people on staff, uh, full-time, part-time. So I'm used to that. But what is not okay if someone's intentionally stirring a pot, intentionally sticking their fingers in in order to cause an undermining and not let people reinvest emotionally in the future. So it's not just church attenders and members. It's also pastors. We have to be careful about this as well. Number three, I'll keep going here. Are you ready for number three? Yes. <laughs> Never practicing Jesus' way of peacemaking and constant gossiping. Never practicing Jesus' way of peacemaking and constant gossiping. Just ignore Matthew 18, and that will help kill your church. We did a whole series on this. You can go back and listen to it. That's all I'm going to say. Never practice Jesus' way. Talk to everybody else in the dog before you learn to talk to the person one-on-one. -on -one. That's a great way to kill a church. And all God's people said, well... All right. Number four. Here's a great one. Oh, how to kill your church. Always be thinking of this question. Always in any decision, who's in control? Who's in control? Say it with me. Who's in control? This reveals something about one's heart and your relationship to power, right? So in a healthy believer's church, the idea of power is that we believe that power is not limited, but it is unlimited, and that God multiplies it, and that the role of people in ministry, pastors, elders, leaders, whoever we put in, whatever we want to call leadership, is not to control. They can direct, they can uh, ultimately help shape vision and all of that, but the good shepherd are people who empower others to rise up in their gifts. And so when change comes, if we ask this question first, without asking the deeper question of what's, my, what's the question behind the question, do I see power is limited or something that can multiply? If I see it as limited, I'm always gonna be strangled by this question because I'm gonna be so concerned that the outcome, when you see power is limited, then you think it reflects, all everything reflects back on you instead of the larger group. And so I think that's something where we really have to wrestle with this question. Pastors are called to be good shepherds, by the way, not always gentle shepherds. Good shepherds, not always gentle shepherds. In fact, the only passage that talks about Jesus being the gentle shepherd in Matthew, and he talks about this idea of take my yoke upon me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm gentle of spirit and heart. And, and this is talking about specific context where people have been weighed down with burdens. But on the other hand, Jesus is more often than not the bigger category is good shepherd. Say it with me, good. Or the Hebrew would tov if you want to read Scott McKnight and Bassinger's book, Sarah Bassinger's book about this. He was gentle to the outsider, the beat down, the outcast, but he also knew the behavior and the heart of people. And he said to a sick man, by the way, in a different context, do you want to be well? That's not a gentle shepherd. That's a good shepherd. That was rude. That was harsh. He was gentle with those who needed it, but he was always good and sometimes spoke words that people didn't want to hear because healing sometimes involves the doctor, the physician of our soul saying, you have cancer. A gentle shepherd may not say that. They may want to avoid that, but a good shepherd tells you and tries to communicate it secondarily, gently, and in love. Good shepherd speaks the truth in love. In fact, Galatians 6 tells us to not coddle people, gently restore, but restore involves speaking truth. And the last few ones real quick here. Quenching the Holy Spirit. Say me with me. Quenching the Holy Spirit. Instead of flowing with new things in relationships, 
We always look to kill the new. Kill the new. Kill the new. That's quenching the Holy Spirit. If it makes me uncomfortable, kill it. If it causes me, if they call me to try to do something that I've never done before, kill it. Lord, help us. If there's anything creative that breaks out in our worship gatherings or whatever we do, obviously rooted in the grand tradition, but kill it. Quenching the Holy Spirit. Paul says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Let the Spirit of God work in us. We need to work at more planned spontaneity in our lives to be sensitive to the Spirit. That's also about deconnecting from our devices and being attentive to the people in front of us more often. The last few here, number six. It's all about me. Say it, it's all about me. We've already hit this, but this is just good. I needed to put it in a second time because it was so good. There was a song when we took a church, we were part of a church, we were on a staff team, and we had the, um, a, a, a counseling center that took the church through some of the personal empowerment stuff and very Jesus-y stuff, so don't get weirded out when I say that. But part of the shift there was to learn that it's all about Jesus, and when you make it all about Jesus, then he also deals and fills and, and fills us in with that sense of love. And when that gets twisted, it can get distorted in terms of us feeling um, either a toxic relationship or toxic sort of self-centeredness. So there's sort of that, that third way between those two things. But if you make the church all about you all the time, um, that'll kill the church, full stop. Number seven, and then I have two little bonus ones that I needed to sneak in. So number seven, making it all about buildings and money. We've already hit on this, but Matthew 6, 19 through 21 Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our ultimate security is not in our bank account. Yes, we need to be wise. We're going to live into old age. We, don't, we hope we live into old age. yes. But our ultimate security as the church is not about the barn, the building. Jesus tells this wonderful story about a man who decided that he thought a great harvest was coming. And so he tore down his barn and built a bigger barn. What he didn't know was that his life was required of him that very night. And he was so focused on the barn. And I'm not caring about the size of the barn, but the fact that the barn was the focus. This campus is not the focus. This building the campus at 40th and Quebec is not the focus. If the buildings and the money becomes the focus, you're going to kill your church. Those are lagging indicators of health. They should never be front-end indicators of church health. When the budget turns inward only, we spend it only on ourselves instead of how can we serve outward. And outward spending, by the way, is not just about compassion ministry. It certainly includes that. But it's also about how do we connect with the most people in Vancouver's problem is what do I do with success? What do I do with success? What do I do with that? That it's not meeting the need that I think just a little more money and a little more success will get me there. Those are real. Those are also real needs, I should say. Building maintenance society or historical chapel society? Are we trying to be a museum or a hospital? Eight and nine, and then we pray. <laughs> the poor among us are reduced to projects instead of persons to be lifted and brought into the community with gifts to share. We live in the midst of global affluence here in Vancouver, although many of us may be richer on paper than in actual life. But when we make those who are poor and those in spiritual poverty as well a project instead of incorporating them as persons in community, 
So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. To be honored by others, look at us. We used to talk about virtue signaling. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward. But when you give, do not let your left hand know what the right is doing. Give in secret, then your father who sees in secret will reward you. And by the way, this also does something transformative to you in that you see someone as a person created in the image and likeness of God. And we see how can we continue to make that level the, the, the field, as it were, relationally. And number nine, and then we are truly done. So worship team, if you're coming up, you should come up during number nine. I invite you to do so. Number nine. And number nine, survey says, refuse, refuse to read the Bible and worship and pray in your personal life, putting it all on the Sunday morning gathering. Sunday mornings are only part of a larger picture. You want to kill your church and make it all about Sunday and forget about home church, forget about living a real life with people in the mess week in and week out. Acts 5, 20 and 42, every day in the temple courts and from house to house, they did not stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Hebrews 6.1 says this, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Jesus and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith and baptism and laying on of hands. Well, we probably need to work on that in Baptist land, laying on of hands part, especially post-COVID. And a way that's not creepy and Jesus-y, by the way. Uh, resurrection of the dead and eternal uh, judgment or eternal justice. Putting it all on Sunday morning. Now, Sunday mornings are important. We've learned that during COVID time. Jay Kim's book, Analog Church, we are learning that what we do in body practice matters, but it should not be the only thing as you follow Jesus. That you begin to wrestle with the text. When you hear people who are like in the hardcore fundamentalists interpreting the Bible in a certain way or people that are hardcore, I'm fully deconstructing and, and I'm just deconstructing and I'm never moving beyond that and I'm gonna be like super whatever, anti-Christ, anti-Christian, anti-all of it. And how they read the Bible. If you're reading the Bible like this, you're actually missing it. It needs to learn to read it through Jesus. But learn to what it actually says and reading it in the full scope and sequence and what's going on in this thing of people responding to the Holy Spirit and Jesus working in their lives. But you need to learn to embody these practices in daily office. We'll talk about that, by the way, in an Emotionally Healthy Spirituality series later on this year. So to summarize this morning, if I were to just give you just a few ones to just absolutely remember these Repent of making it all about you, your power, your control, your past in terms of the community. It can be partly about you and partly about your power and partly about control and making decisions and partly about that, but it can't be all about that. It also needs to be future-oriented and leaning. God, give me the courage and conviction, again, to live like the heroes of Hebrews 11. To not hold on to the things in my church that are about my personal preferences and styles. Show me not only how to let go, but where to let go so that I can heed your commands more closely. The second thing I would say, repent of making it all about you, secondly, is release control. Oh my goodness. I found in a church that there's a proper role for pastors about empowerment and some directional leadership, but for the most part, Ephesians 4, it's about equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. There's a releasing of control and relinquishment that we have to learn to live together well. You want to stay married, learning relinquishment is super important. I was going to make a joke about me relinquishing control of loading the dishwasher properly. I'm the one that loads it improperly, my wife. Okay, we're still working on that one. But uh, releasing control, there's something about that that's important to recognize if we're going to walk in something new together. If we want more people involved, that means we release a lot of our individual control over things. 
If we want it controlled in exactly how we think church should be, then you should do like the joke of the guy who was on this desert island who, when he was finally found, the guy, you've all heard this story. I've heard, the, I've heard the version of the rabbi. I've heard the version of the imam. I've heard the version of the pastor. But anyway, the land on the island, the guy said, well, why is there two mosques for the, the Islamic version of this? He said, well, that's where I used to go to, 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 to pray on Friday. Now I go over here because I don't like that one anymore. Release control. Finally summarized, rise up and sl from slumber and follow Jesus, a new commitment to the one who is knocking. And risk big for the future. Better together is a choice for the future of South Vancouver, along with a bunch of other churches, but at least for our two churches, about making a bigger impact in a healthier way together. And that will require that we move away from behaviors that kill churches. So I invite you into that. Stand with me this morning as we pray and prepare to leave this little hot box that we are in. <clears throat> Lord, oh, thank you for air conditioning and what a glorious thing it must be. May we experience it one day in this house. Lord, thank you that we can learn from people that have gone before pastors and teachers in the larger community in North America, like Tom Rainer, like Melissa Archer, like Jay Kim, And as we look at the negative side and we get the positive side next Sunday, may we do some self-examination. What is our role in all of this? In this church at Pilgrim, in the church at Emmanuel, at the churches together, are we acting and behaving in ways that are leaning us towards receiving your empowering grace and living like Jesus? Or are we defaulting to fear of power and control, anxious scarcity versus superabundance? And so, Lord, as we do a little bit deep dive today, I ask that this would lead into better conversations way beyond what I shared on this Sunday morning. So, Lord, do that deeper work as we've now lit the fuse under this fire. Holy Spirit, take it, make it what it needs to be in Jesus' name.